So I'm talking a little bit today about language, about the words that we use and the words that others give us. But I've been thinking recently about the about the Rosa Parks statue. Have any of you seen it yet since it's been unveiled? It's supposed to be just beautiful, and I'm planning a pilgrimage there at some point with my daughter, my older daughter who's five years old and for whom Rosa Parks is a major hero. I like to think it's because she was born with sort of an innate civil rights heart, you know? I think that she really resonates with the story of refusing to obey rules more more broadly. Unjust rules. Rosa Parks, kind of a hero to preschoolers everywhere. But then, you know, we're, we're just going to use that right, right into um, an understanding of the civil rights movement. And I've talked to you a little bit about a, a book I have about Rosa Parks that's one of my daughter's favorites. And there's a song as well about Rosa Parks that's on a children's CD that we have. A CD called um, By Heart, I think, sung by Susan Saylor. And and it's meant for preschoolers, this CD, and the song is just a great one about the, tells the whole story of Rosa Parks on the bus and and that she refuses to get up, that she says, no, I'll stay where I I am. And so, of course, we sing along to this song in the car, which is what we do with music all the time in my family. And, uh, And I remember the first time I heard the song... And I, was, I had heard it enough, but maybe hadn't concentrated on the whole thing, so I was starting to sing along. And then there in the song, as the singer is describing what the bus driver said to Rosa Parks, they use the N-word. Now, I really don't know who puts that word in a song for preschoolers. <laughs> but it doesn't work with my sing-along plan. <laughs> So I spent a number of, my husband and I talked about it, and, and should we ban the song, you know, should we, should we skip over it when it comes on the CD, but it's a great song. It's a song about a true story. So we kept the song, and Marcella loves the song, and she loves the story, and she loves the figure of Rosa Parks. And I would sing to part of the song and then just kind of cut out, you know, because I can't sing that part of the song. I can't do it. Or I'd hum over it. And then finally, a couple of months ago, Marcella asked me what that word meant. And I knew I couldn't just hum over it anymore. And I think I said something like, we, were, we had parked at that point, <laughs> happily. I wasn't driving down the freeway trying to explain this word to my child. And so we had parked, and I, and I turned off the car, and I think I said something like, you know, that's a, it's a terrible word. It's a word that people use when they're being very cruel and very mean to people who are African-American, and we never use that word in our family, not ever. And she, she understood that. I think it was enough for her. And so we still listen to the song, and it makes more sense now, maybe, that I don't sing that part of the song. But the whole thing has me thinking about terrible words, bad words and what that means, what it means to have a word that's unspeakable, the way that word is for me. In a much less weighted way, I think about that with my daughter all the time because it may be a surprise to you because obviously everybody thinks I'm probably some kind of saint. (laughs) But, 
but I might have sworn in front of my child before. Not frequently, but it's possible that it's happened that she's heard me say a different kind of bad word. And then you have to talk about that. And that's a different kind of conversation. You know, it's much less weighted, but still, I prefer not to have my five-year-old running around saying words that aren't appropriate for five-year-olds to say. And that's how I talk about it with her. You know, I say, well, Mama shouldn't have said that word. And it really doesn't happen that much. (laughs) But I say, Mama shouldn't have said that word. You know, sometimes I say it's kind of a sloppy word. It's a word you say when you can't really think of anything else, you know. But I say it's not appropriate for a child to say that word. And it would make people uncomfortable to hear a child say that word. And I think that's true. My own feelings about swear words have evolved somewhat considerably, actually. I used to really never swear at all. And then I did a summer as a chaplain at a hospital. (laughs) And I don't know what it is about chaplains, but, you know, like, oh, he has a mouth like a sailor. Nope. It should be, he has a mouth like a chaplain. (laughs) I think it's all the time in the hospital around these big, hard things happening in people's lives that you just lose that filter. You need a way to let off steam. And I will tell you the chaplains that I know let off steam using words that I won't repeat here because this is a family show. (laughs) And every once in a while, I kind of slip up and and I swear in my pastoral life and I'll as a clergy person, and I'll tell you that, that I do it usually when someone has, has told me something really tragic, when that's the first word that comes to mind. And sometimes I follow it right up by saying, oh, that was a theological term <laughs> to describe how I feel. But there's something, you know, deep and true about that, too, that sometimes there isn't a better word for something that's, that's just terrible. And, and, of course, what words count as swear words changes over time and across generations. And the things that I don't think anything of are words that, that make my mother cringe. And I'm sure that she uses words that would have made her mother cringe. And actually, I'm not sure my grandmother would have cringed at any of those words. But, 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 you know, it changes over time. Language changes and the kinds of words that we use and that we find acceptable. And still at the same time, there are some words that are so inappropriate to our context that they're never worth saying. That's the N-word for me. There's been some reclamation of that word within some segments of the African-American community. But as a white person, it's never okay. I meant what I said to my daughter. That single word pulls us back into centuries of racism, race hatred, and white supremacy. Centuries that continue now. But then there are other words that are slurs or that have been slurs that are reclaimed in a way that feels more powerful and right. Some of you were here last week when we had our welcoming congregation platform and four lay people spoke about their experiences and their own identities, uh, some of them within the LGBTQ or quilt bag community. And one of the words we talked about in that platform was the word queer, a word that has been not a slur and then was a slur and has now been reclaimed by some, but not all, within the LGBTQ community. I think in some ways there's a difference there with that word because 
you can get to the root and find something that, that's positive to reclaim. You know, queer originally meant odd or different, and my friends and the folks I know that have reclaimed the word queer tend to embrace that difference, to see it as, um, as, as celebrating difference in the world, as reclaiming it in that way. But again, I think it's a generational word, our comfort level with that word, and we, we heard a little bit about that last week, about the way that that it hits us differently and how we can allow somebody to reclaim a word that doesn't work for us, you know? Is that possible for us? How can we make that possible? There are other reclamations even that come out of the sort of neo-feminist movement. Some of you know about the slut walk. Have you heard about that? Kind of reclaiming women, reclaiming the power of their own sexuality and I understand it and I can't quite get there. I'm not there yet. So there are some reclamations that I can go with and some that I can't, and probably you have different ones, is my guess, or maybe none of them, or maybe all of them. We have different experiences with those words in a community as diverse as ours, diverse generationally, diverse culturally, diverse in terms of identity, and how we claim or don't claim those words for ourselves. But those words, (laughs) that's easy compared to religious language in a community like this, right? We can talk about the word queer and what that means and how we hear it and how it works for some people but doesn't for others and and how we respect the reclamation of it. But, ooh, the reclamation of religious language gets even trickier. It's a huge question, I think, for a community like ours. What words do we want to reclaim, if any, What words don't we? Why would we bother reclaiming religious language? Why would we bother looking for the peace underneath? That whole conversation about the reclamation of language was was kind of a national conversation within the Unitarian Universalist movement starting in about the early 2000s. And it simmered down some since then, although there was just a book published quite recently kind of bringing the conversation back into the national landscape. And, and it was framed within that movement uh, as the language of reverence, a conversation about the language of reverence. And there were folks all over the theological spectrum, people who identified as theists and as humanists and as atheists, all talking about what the language of reverence was and if they thought they needed it, and if they did need it, what did it mean, and what, you know, what kind of words could they use. It started actually from a... Uh, sermon that was preached by David Bumbaugh, who's one of the kind of great humanists in the Unitarian Universalist tradition. And he was talking about humanism and mourning that it, it, he felt as though it had a decreasing importance. And here, here's what he said why. He was talking about how humanism had defended reason and, and how important that was. But he said, in the, and I quote, in the process of defending, we have lost the ability to speak of that which is sacred holy, of ultimate importance to us, the language that would allow us to enter into critical dialogue with the religious community. So that was the initial call from this humanist minister saying, you know, we need to find a way to speak of what's of ultimate importance. 
And then Bill Sinkford, who was at the time the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, you're kind of getting like a little inside look on the politics. So then he wrote a, wrote a, uh, did a speech, I think, where he referenced that sermon, or maybe it was, and then that was published, and then David Bumbau wrote another sermon and said, oh, it's not what I meant. And so anyway, it went back and forth, and eventually all of these things were collected into a book called The Language of Reverence. Well, Bill Sinkford, when he heard that call from David Bumbau for a language of reverence, he, he responded by saying that what he thought that language should be called for a reclamation, a reclamation of words and images for him from the Jewish and Christian traditions, to enter into that conversation more fully and not to cede them to the orthodox understandings of those words. To take the power away from, you know, from Orthodox Christians or from the Christian right and to say that Unitarian Universalism, in this case as a, as a movement with lots of humanists and lots of atheists and a liberal religious movement, that they could use those words too, could figure out the new meaning, could reclaim those words, just as we have reclaimed some secular words. So that's what he called for. And then, and then as I said, Bumbau wrote back and said, oh, no, wait, I think you misunderstood me. And uh, he starts his, Bumbau starts his response by saying, you know, you, you preach a sermon and then you kind of think you're done. And then someone finds it and quotes you. So in his response to Bill Singford, he says, this is David Bumbau again, we must have a language of reverence. That is, we must have the ability to speak with power about what is deepest and dearest, about the focus of our ultimate commitment, about the sources of human good, about what is so precious to us that we cannot betray it without losing our own souls. But let me be equally clear, he goes on, that I believe Bill, that was Bill Sinkford, is wrong when he seeks to find that language of reverence in the classical forms and categories of the monotheistic Jewish and Christian traditions. That will make us partners in a conversation about a world that is gone. The interesting thing to me about David Bumbau's response to Bill Sinkford, to his, you know, what he said about Bumbau's belief that we couldn't reclaim those words, is that it's not that he thought that they had been taken by the Christian right or by Orthodox Christianity. He actually thought they had been co-opted by politicians and the mass media. Isn't that interesting? He thought that they were being used to sell more TVs, you know, and get us to vote for candidates. That those, that the language that had had so much power in the past had lost the power because it had been used too lightly. It had been used without weight and without depth. And so he, David Bumbau, invited uh, an engagement in a different language of reverence. He found that language of reverence in the Humanist Manifesto and in the story of the universe, of evolution, of science, the wonder of the smallest within us and the biggest outside of us and the idea that it's all somehow magically, miraculously, scientifically us. Some found an answer and engaged in that conversation thinking about metaphor, going beyond the original context of words and even beyond words that make sense with each other, thinking about language where we begin, where we start out knowing that we aren't, that the language isn't always going to mean what we think it means, where we start with that context around it. Laurel Hallman is one of the people who wrote in that way, a Unitarian Universalist minister who at the time was serving in Dallas, Texas. And she writes about language in general. I love the way she puts this. 
The problem with language is that those words, those simple individual words, are slippery little devils. They don't stay put. I remember my shock, she goes on, as a junior high student when I used the word queer thinking it meant odd and discovering to my dismay that it was a pejorative label for a homosexual. This was way before reclamation. I was most horrified that the word didn't mean what I thought it did. Until that point, I had assumed that words meant what they meant, that words stood still. She goes on, so if words don't stand still, if they are subject over time to misplaced concreteness, isn't that interesting, misplaced concreteness, if they don't necessarily represent one theology or another, if they are inadequate even when they serve political and psychological purposes, even when they give us some meaning and purpose, if they need to point to the depths of lived experience, but if we live more deeply than we can think, if we are currently in a crisis of language, which I believe we are, if we are truly to minister in the fields of human need, what will save us from ourselves? My answer, Holman says, is poetry. And Laurel Holman actually developed a whole way of kind of engaging with the spiritual and ethical life around poetry, around memorizing, copying and memorizing and recopying poems. Poems that, that we don't expect to make sense from the beginning, where we know that the words are going to mean something different almost each time we return to the page. I think there's a trick, though, in a community like ours, in the Unitarian Universalist movement, but at West as well, a trick to find the balance of speaking with metaphor and poetry and openness and speaking with integrity. You know what I mean? And people find different balances. That's really the trick, of course. We're all in a different place on that scale. The challenge is that we don't always know when one person is talking about a metaphor, but another person means something concrete with that word, and the third person can't even hear the metaphor because the concrete words are such a block that they stopped listening five minutes ago. And we don't all have the same blocks either. That would actually be convenient, you know, if we just could pick, like, the six words we aren't going to say. Jean Harrison Newar who has recently kind of returned to this conversation about reverence and, the lang and language specifically, writes, religious words are layered with centuries of use, layered with texture and beauty, and yes, layered sometimes with oppressive meanings. She goes on, even as I urge us to use religious language more broadly, I caution that we must hold these words lightly using them to point and to suggest, not to define. I like the idea of using words to point and suggest, not define. Isn't that a great phrase? Just to point toward something, toward an idea. After having been raised in a Unitarian Universalist childhood myself in a humanist congregation within that movement and then going to a Methodist seminary and a chaplaincy where, as I've already mentioned, people were saying all kinds of different things, I've gotten relatively comfortable with hearing all kinds of words and making my own meaning for them, trying to see what they're pointing to and if I can point to the same thing in a different way. But that's not true for all of us. It's not true for me every day either, both because we have different 
deep, sometimes painful associations with words, but, but also really because words matter. They're important. Some feel looser, and some feel we simply can't speak without a deep integrity behind what we say. Paula Gunn Allen puts this in kind of a nice way, I think. She talks about the idea of linguistic honor. This is from Words and Language, a haggle. And she writes, There is an enormous difference between the way Western people approach the use of language and the way tribal people approach it. Tribal people say the words are sacred. We don't mean that you are supposed to kneel down and worship them. We mean that you should, in your being, recognize that when you speak, your utterance has consequences inwardly and outwardly, and that you are accountable for those consequences. You can't just say anything that comes to your head and then get distressed if another person acts on it. Now, that other person may have misunderstood you, which means that they have a responsibility to find out exactly what you mean before they act, but the principle is still there. Without linguistic honor, without linguistic honor, there can be no community, there can be no ethic, there can be no love, there can be no creative vision, there can be no peace, and there can be no relationship. So that idea of linguistic honor, which I think of as being kind of deep linguistic integrity, that concept, for me, it helps me to understand why there are words that for some of us feel that they can never be reclaimed. That we can't speak them without running the risk of everyone misunderstanding what we mean. So if language causes such problems, you know, really, maybe we shouldn't bother to talk. <laughs> a little doubtful that would actually work here. Just saying. I had the chance recently to watch all of the Twilight movies, you know, the tween teen vampire series. Come on, I know some of you have seen those movies. Give me a break. Thank you. I also read all the books, so I'm more literary that way, you know, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, I just watched all the movies all together. And first of all, I think it's a really would be a great idea if we all became vampires. They don't have to sleep, which would have been really convenient this weekend for me. So, number one, parents of young children definitely should consider becoming vampires. But I was thinking about, about those movies as I was um, planning this platform. And there's a, I'm not going to give anything away because you probably will want to see the movies at some point. But um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a child. I'm not going to tell you who's child. But just a child. I'm just saying. Um, there's a child at one point who um, has a particular gift. Some of the vampires have special gifts. And, um, and her gift is that she can project images, what she's thinking, uh, right into someone's mind. She just has to touch them. And she's, she develops this gift. She has the gift. Well, she actually has it in utero. Anyway, um, and so you can kind of like go through the... It's complicated. Um, but as soon as she's born, she has this gift. And so this tiny little baby, right, is able to just put her hand on her mother's face. And her mother sees her memories and her thoughts and her loves. And then as she grows older, of course, she learns to speak. But when she's trying to say something really important, she just goes up and puts, puts her hand on someone's face so that they can see what she means, so that she doesn't have to depend on the words. She just puts her hand on their face. And I, and I think, really, I mean, that might be great, you know, <laughs> if we could all do that. 
just kind of go up and put our hands on each other's faces and, and somehow have all of those thoughts and images that we hold, that we struggle to express, somehow have them seen and understood. But then I think there's something, there is something particular about language. I have a 19-month-old, as well as my 5-year-old, and, and my 5-year-old spoke very early, and then she never really stopped. And the 19-month-old, I think, probably feels that there is just enough talking already in the house. <laughs> so she's she not really talking much. She has a few words, you know. She's very communicative. You always know what she wants. She's quite clear. She gestures. She comes and gets your hand and walks you over and points like, uh, that's right there. You know, and I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very clear. And so the truth is that her speaking wouldn't particularly facilitate our ability to care for her anymore. I mean, she has figured out the way to communicate with us what she needs so that we know very clearly and we can answer those needs, you know, or ignore them depending on what they are. But... <laughs> But we're so anxious to hear her talk still, you know. We're so anxious. And I remember this with my first child, too. I just couldn't wait to hear what she had to say. Even though my little one can communicate to me, to hear her say it to me, there's just something powerful about that, about the spoken word. Jean Harrison Newar, who I mentioned earlier, who's kind of come into this conversation quotes uh, Frederick Beekner, who she refers to, I love this, as the gently Episcopal priest. I don't know, what he was like only kind of Episcopal or especially nice, but he was wonderful. Frederick Beekner is a, was a wonderful priest and, 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 um, and had some wonderful writing. And so she quotes him in a book called A Room Called Remember, A Room Called Remember, in which Beekner writes, It is not that you feel love and then say, I love you, but that until you say, I love you, you have not fully loved. In some important sense, the thing you are seeing or feeling doesn't even fully exist for you until you have given a word for it. And I think there's something to that, that the power of naming something, of struggling and trying to communicate it, to speak it, that it makes it so in a particular way, you know, when you name it. And then language calls us, it asks us into relationship with each other. You know, we talk a lot about about ethical culture being a religion of relationships, a religion where the relationship between people matters so much. And there's no time when it matters more than when we're trying to communicate with each other. Because we can't just go up and touch another person's face. That we have to try so hard to share what it is that we're feeling. Laurel Holman, who I mentioned earlier as well, calls language a relational system. A word, especially one of depth of experience, has many associations, she wrote, and our job is to be open to those associations. They take us deeper than we, than we can think because we are not observers. We are participating in the conversation with our very lives. I think making relationships work when we have to talk to each other, when we're not actually you know, vampires with special powers, which, if you are, that's great, and you're definitely welcome here. 
actually, the vampire movies have a great message about inherent worth, I will just say. <laughs> but if you're not, and you have to talk or communicate in some way, you know, language calls us into that relationship and asks us to trust each other with it. Karen Armstrong, in her book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, says language is based on trust. We have to assume, at least initially, that our interlocutor is speaking truth and telling us something of value. She goes on to say that, that if we hear a statement that, that, that sounds false or that sounds strange at some point, linguists have found something that they call the principle of charity, that we try to find, here's what she says, we try to find a context in which it makes sense because we want to understand what is being said to us. The same mechanism is at work when we try to translate a text written in a foreign language, Armstrong continues. Linguists have called this epistemological law the principle of charity. It requires that when we are confronted with discourse that is strange to us, we seek an interpretation which, in the light of what it knows of the facts, will maximize truth among the sentences of the corpus. Isn't that amazing? That there's an, a linguistic law, the principle of charity, that basically means we want to be able to understand each other. And that we put ourselves through all these kinds of things so that we can understand each other, so that the thing that the person says to me makes sense to me. That we do it even across different languages to make it make sense. There is, I think, a very live conversation at West. I'm sure there has been for many years, and I hope that it never stops, about what words are our words. You know, what words we want to reclaim. And, of course, there's a side question, not inconsequential, about who we are when we say our words. But ultimately, that question, that conversation is about safety, I think. About feeling safe that we will not be assaulted by words we simply cannot hear. And at the same time, that we are safe to be able to speak the words we simply cannot live without. I don't know if those two things are always possible at the same time. I don't know. There may be some words that make those two things mutually exclusive. The safety of the speaker and the safety of the hearer. I hope, I hope that's not the case. I hope they're not mutually exclusive. I believe that we can learn to listen more deeply. But I may be wrong. Words are powerful things, more than we realize sometimes. What I do know is that this kind of listening calls on our community to listen beyond words, too. To listen to each word, as Mary invited us to do in the meditation this morning. Each word in the phrase. I'm hoping that we're going to be able to have some spaces for conversation about this in the coming months. So I invite you to keep an eye out for that, or an ear out, maybe, more specifically. Chances to talk and to listen. To think about safety and what each of us needs to feel safe about what language we can tolerate and what language we can love and what language we can begin to try to understand, what language we want to understand because we want so much to hear and be heard. 
I have one more little piece from Jean Harrison Newar that I that I really love. She tells a story about um, about a movie that she saw that was uh, in Arabic. Uh, with subtitles, I guess. And a character in the movie, a younger person says to an older person, can you tell me what it's like to be in love? And the older person says, and I guess this is in English, and the older person says, well, I can tell you, but only in Arabic. Neuauer says, reflecting on that story, some of what I know I can express only in a language I do not know. There is something to be communicative, something real and important, but it lies beyond my ability to express with my everyday vocabulary. I can tell you, but only in Arabic. I think it speaks to our need to be creative with our language and with our silence and with our listening. Some of the music that was chosen this morning is in a different language. Intentionally, I mean, we talked about it ahead of time. (laughs) And occasionally, I wish we all spoke different languages, you know? That we would get into the practice of translating, of realizing that that word in French doesn't really have an equivalent in English. It doesn't mean quite the same thing. Or in Spanish, or in Hebrew, where there are no vowels, and so the same letters mean many different words, many different things. I do believe it's possible for us, though, not easy, but possible, to have our different meanings for the same words, or different words for the same meaning, and different voices all come together, that if we listen carefully enough, we can hear, or maybe better yet, we can see. that we are saying the same thing. I don't know, but I would like to listen for that.